This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, Today we have another very special guest. Uh, We have uh, a good friend and a great scholar and uh, a great public intellectual, uh, Professor Michael Morgan from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Michael, uh, so nice to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Well, we're looking forward to the discussion. Uh, We're going to be talking today about uh, human rights, uh, where the concept comes from how we think about human rights in the world today, and particularly the role of the United States in the promotion and protection of human rights uh, at home and abroad. Uh, Before we turn to that uh, topic, though, we have our scene-setting poem, as always, from Mr. Zachary Siri. Uh, What's the title of your poem, Zachary? The Dream. The Dream. Well, let's hear about the dream. Before this, there was a child. There was a child who slept in the cold, and as they slept, they dreamed a far-off dream. The child did not dream that all was right, that none was wrong that night. The child did not dream that all could live in peace, that there could be no war to run from with fright. The child did not dare to dream that all would laugh and none would frown at the sky. The child did not dare dream that all could sleep as deep or dream as long as they. No, the sleeping child that hugged the mudded ground dreamt for all that all could live and dwell, that all could live and dwell without the fear of being gone, that all could know the knowledge in cerebral psalm, dreaming that all could breathe and all could rest at night, that all could hold a blanket tight and every child there could play in the sand, that all might wonder at the stars, that all might see their beauty and the beauty in themselves, that all could swim and all could walk across the oceans and the forest far, the child dreamt that all might speak and voice the corners of their soul, that all would not see hate and fear in the eyes of a fellow there. It dreamt that deep among them all that there could be a common flag that all might seek, might seek that none should sleep without the rest of safety, without the slumber of contentment. And as Aristotle talked of true and truthful happiness among his Athenian hills, the child did not dream of this, the child dreamed of freedom. The child dreamed of right, the child dreamed of rights, the child dreamed of human rights and slept until the morrow. That's beautiful, Zachary. What, what is your poem about? My poem is really about this sort of, this sort of vision of a world where not, not necessarily fulfilling these, ama- these uh, huge ideas of eliminating war and all living in a utopia, but of everyone having their basic needs met and having the ability to live, to live happily and the opportunities that they need to succeed sounds like a a nice place to live. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mike, where does uh, this concept of human rights that Zachary refers to that we're using as our title today, where where does it come from? It's a great question. I think to answer that, I want to just take a step back and ask, well, what is a human right in the first place? Uh And I love your poem, Zachary, in part because I think it captures one of the ways of thinking about human rights, the idea of a dream or I think the term that you used was a common flag. One way to think about what a human rights a human right is is that it's it's an idea that all human beings are entitled to certain things. They get certain things simply because they're human. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it in that way, there's a bunch of ideas that flow from that. So one of them is that You can never lose your human rights. You don't have to earn your human rights. You always have them from the moment of your birth. They can't be taken away. And no matter what passport you hold, where you live, what the color of your skin is, 
the fact that you're you're human grants you these protections, right. these freedoms. And these are ideas. This idea can unite everyone. It can be a common flag for the entirety of humanity. That's the aspiration. That's one way of thinking about this. It's a beautiful aspiration. It is a beautiful aspiration. Yeah. So we can think of human rights as as an idea. We can think of human rights as an act of imagination mm -hmm. because to make that claim that all human beings are fundamentally similar and that we all share certain things in common, that can only happen if you, if you undertake this act of imagination because we can't meet all other human beings, right? right? It, it depends on a certain amount of, of faith or belief or conviction. Uh, it's not something that can be proven empirically, right? right? So if we ask, you know, where does this idea come from? If we look at it historically, where does this idea come from? There's different ways of tracing it back. Um, the, I think the, the easiest place to start is, is probably uh, the European Enlightenment, mm -hmm. the 18th century, which is an era in which philosophers, writers were trying to think about these basic questions of what is good, what is justice, how should human societies organize themselves. And they were also responding to recent history, most prominently, probably, uh, wars of religion, mm -hmm. which had afflicted Europe for 200 years. Religious divisions, particularly between Catholics and Protestants, but also discrimination against other minority groups, Jews, for example. And one of the ideas of Enlightenment thinkers was that if we can get beyond religious difference mm -hmm. or national difference, cultural difference, number one, we can see that there is something more fundamental than those transient differences or those surface differences between people. And we can grasp something really fundamental and universal. So this idea emerges in part, I think, in reaction to the violence caused by religious division and religious discrimination. But it's also spurred on by things like the European, the quote-unquote, discovery of the new world. Mm -hmm. This discovery that there are other kinds of human beings out there. Right, living far away. Living far away with radically different cultures who hadn't even been dreamt of before. Or, looking in the other direction, some of these Enlightenment philosophers are thinking about China. Right. Or Persia, and the differences between Europe and those cultures, those societies. Is, is it fair to say, uh, Mike, that um, human rights are also at the core of democratic theory? When uh, Americans and others in, in all different parts of the world think about democracy, particularly in the 18th and 19th century, yeah. and debate about democracy, are, are those inherently debates about human rights as well? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think that the idea of human rights is the same thing as the idea of democracy, but I think they share a common set of assumptions or a common set of ideas. So one of the key principles in both is this faith in human equality yes. and this commitment yes. to human equality. Right. Um, 
And so it, limits on the state, right? And the state's ability or any political entity's ability to infringe on human dignity and freedom and equality, exactly. right? Exactly. And this gets to an, actually another way of thinking about human rights, of addressing the first question that I asked, you know, what is a human right? You can think of human rights as an idea, but you can also think about human rights as a practice, yes. as a political agenda to pursue and to implement and so on. Uh, and in this context, you're exactly right to talk about um, democratic theory, the practice of democratic government, because in that context, human rights, human rights requires certain kinds of policies. It, it requires a certain approach to forming a government. Yes. Who is included? Who gets a voice? What can the government do? What can't the government do in relation to its own citizens? And also in relation to citizens in other countries. Right, right. And and you've written uh, a fantastic new book that we want to make sure everyone reads uh, called The Final Act, which is uh, about a particular moment uh, in the debates about human rights and international justice um, and stability and order, but also beyond that, really uh, about the struggle the United States finds itself in throughout its history, but particularly in the last century of trying to marry its power to these concepts of human rights. Uh, and one of the things you do so well in the book is you show how Americans and American allies abroad struggle with these issues. Uh, are there particular uh, historical lessons for us or historical insights that come from this, this struggle? Mm -hmm. One of the lessons that emerges is that Human rights is, we can say that human rights is an important value, but it's not the only value. Mm -hmm. It's not the only thing that is worth pursuing. I think a common way of thinking about human rights is to say, well, human rights claims trump everything else. Right. And everything else has to be subordinate to those ideas. The difficulty with thinking about human rights in that way, though, is that it, it produces a very a binary or black and white way of thinking about politics. And it ignores the fact that politics, any kind of politics, especially democratic politics, involves conflicts between different ideas of the good or different good things that are worth mm -hmm. pursuing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not possible to have everything all of the time. So in the context of, say, human rights and American foreign policy, one of the things that emerges from looking at this history is that, yes, human rights uh, have been important as an idea and as a practice. And I think there are good reasons that we can articulate for defending human rights, for demanding respect for human rights, and so on. But we can also see from the history that they are connected or they are intertwined with other things that are really important too, mm -hmm. like the maintenance of international peace. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the protection of human rights and the maintenance of peace go hand in hand. They reinforce each other. But there are other cases in which the protection of peace or the maintenance of peace and the defense of human rights are at odds with each other. Right. And that can require trade-offs, mm -hmm. which means that we can't think about human rights in simplistic terms, that human rights is a, 
a permanent universal good that always needs to be defended uh, because sometimes there are difficult trade-offs involved. Right. And, and one of our students asked a question that's uh, directly on target with this. Uh, Cindy Abdullah uh, asks about our selectivity and perhaps even hypocrisy with these issues. Let's, let's hear Cindy's question. How does the U.S. respond to charges of hypocrisy in requiring human rights to be enforced for some and not others? It's a terrific question. Um, and I think the, the difficulty that the question really gets at is the, the problem of taking these ideas and turning them into reality. Because yes. human rights, it's an idea, but it's also a practice. It's also a politics. How do you go from one to the other? There's never going to be an easy way to do that. There's never going to be a perfect way to do that. Uh, and so because of the trade-offs involved, because human rights is not the only good thing that's available or that's necessary, those trade-offs are always going to be, they're going to be inescapable. Mm -hmm. As long as there is a politics, as long as we have international societies of states and so on, there's always going to be those trade-offs. Can the U.S. be accused of hypocrisy or maybe we should say inconsistency? Mm -hmm. Right. In pursuing human rights and advocating for human rights. I think the answer is, is yes. It's obviously yes. Uh, there has been a selectivity in the kinds of human rights abuses that the United States emphasizes, criticizes, um, and also those which it prefers to ignore or maybe in some cases perpetrates. So that, that inconsistency is it's, – it's there. It's glaring. This raises the question, as some people suggest, as some people uh, have also asked, should the United States therefore not talk about human rights? Mm -hmm. Should other liberal democratic societies not talk about human rights? Or to put it differently, is, is absolute consistency necessary in order to talk about these things? I think the answer has to be no. Because if you, if you, set that as the bar, perfect moral consistency, mm -hmm. then discussion of human rights becomes impossible. Right, right. So one of the reasons why this subject I think is so important, but also so difficult and so fraught is that we're living in the world of imperfection. Right. Where we have a perfect idea that we try to bring into an imperfect world. I love that way of describing the dilemma. This is something Reinhold Niebuhr and other philosophers and theologians uh, have struggled with for, well, for decades and centuries. Um, and, and, and so how do we judge then? How do we judge when we have found ways to um, make compromises that are still compromises that are imperfect but do enough for human rights? And how do we judge when we've gone too far mm -hmm. in abandoning human rights for other goods? What, what, what's our standard, as historians at least, in thinking about that? It's an absolutely fundamental question. I think we make these trade-offs all the time, or we, we live with these trade-offs even in ways that we're not always aware of. We live with them in domestic politics, and we live with them in international politics. So, for example, in domestic politics, in the American context, there is no civil right that is absolute. Mm -hmm. Even something like freedom of speech has limits on it. Of there course. are laws about libel and slander, for example. There are laws of 
copyright. There are laws regarding national security that restrict what people can say. So even with something as sacrosanct, let's say, as freedom of speech, we accept that there are trade-offs involved. There's a balance that's required between competing goods, competing values. The same thing is true in international politics. So to get back to your question, how do we think about these things? How do we judge them? I think that's the frame that we need to use to think about them, not as either doing absolute good or doing absolute wrong, but as compromises and as trade-offs. Right. So in thinking about, one of the things that makes this so painful is that when you think about questions like human rights abuses, how can we say that that is, that those would ever be tolerable? Right. And yet, as someone like Niebuhr would point out, sometimes there are, there are painful cases in which there aren't great alternatives. And if you think about the world from the perspective of a policymaker, even in a liberal democracy, uh, the choices that they face are not between the perfect solution and right. an imperfect solution, but between two imperfect solutions based on different compromises and different trade-offs. And, and one of the things you do so well in your scholarship, in your book, The Final Act, and in other things you've written, is actually trace how people think about these issues. And I think it is fair to judge not simply the, the compromise, but the what went into the compromise. Did decision-makers think through did citizens who voted for a particular outcome, mm-hmm. did they think through the human rights trade-offs mm-hmm. or were they uh, willfully ignorant, mm-hmm. which would reveal a certain um, moral uh, shallowness mm-hmm. at certain moments? Mm-hmm. Um, Zachary, did you want to come in on this? Yeah, I was wondering, uh, how do we determine what are human rights? Like, um, I've heard people say that things that I don't think are human rights and have never really been defined as human rights, like owning a gun, are to them human rights. How, how do we determine what are basic needs for human beings? Great question. I think you've put your finger on one of the fundamental questions here. And it's a question that doesn't get discussed enough because I think the ambiguity in the term human rights, what does that, what does that mean, leads to a lot of conflict and a lot of confusion. It's easy for just about anyone to say, yeah, I support human rights. Who's going to say they don't? The difficulty comes when you ask the follow-up question. What's a human right? How do you draw a distinction between something that is a human right and something that's not? To think about this philosophically or historically, there's, there have been two traditions for answering this question. One is the tradition that we could call uh, the natural law tradition or the naturalist tradition. The other one is what we would call the positive law tradition or the positivist tradition. So natural law folks would say, There are these things called human rights that are inherent and come from human nature. And no matter what human beings do, they are always in existence. Those rights will persist forever. If people are ignorant of those rights, if they don't know that they exist, the rights still exist despite that ignorance. If they are violated, they still exist. No matter what governments say, no matter what individual human beings say, those rights persist because they are tied in a natural way to our human nature. They are eternal and universal. On the other side of the debate, the positivist approach would say human rights only come from human beings. 
They come through legislation. They come through declarations. It's not that the declarations recognize things that already exist. It's that the declarations bring the rights into being. So in the absence of legislation, in the absence of the declarations, you have no human rights. These approaches obviously are in tension with each other, and they have each one has its strengths and its weaknesses. Because from the natural law perspective, which I think is the dominant assumption behind the idea that all human beings have certain inalienable rights by virtue of being human, that's a classic natural law idea. The problem with that comes when you ask the question that you just posed. Well, how do you know what those rights are? How do you enumerate them? The answer, and this is something that philosophers have been wrestling with, at least since the Enlightenment, is, well, you just know. Voltaire writes about this yeah. in, in the Enlightenment. He says that, that there are certain rights that you, you simply understand that you have. They are just obvious to all human beings. They are inscribed on their hearts, and they are universal. That's still, a, it's a powerful idea, but it's a slippery definition. Sure. Now, the downside of the other side, of the positivist approach is to say, the downside is that, well, if it's not articulated by a government, it doesn't exist. And this can lead very easily to a relativistic approach. Sure. To say that, well, because government X doesn't recognize certain human rights, its citizens therefore don't have them. So those ideas, I think there's a, there's a tension between those two approaches. And when we talk about human rights, I think we often slip between those two approaches without always being aware of it. And in the context of, say, the U.S. Constitution and the American tradition of rights, both of those ways of thinking are present. They're subterranean, the positivist sure. tradition and the naturalist tradition, in ways that people aren't always conscious of. Right. Right. And the, the positivist tradition is likely to be more historically contingent, right? The naturalist tradition is likely to be more constrained, right? Because it, 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 there's a claim of timelessness Absolutely. with those. With Ab those. Absolutely. So, so that leads us to uh, another student question that we have. This is from uh, Tedham Anderson. And he asks, building on this, these tensions, when is the time that human rights become actionable for the use of violence? When can we uh, intervene? And this is something, Michael, you've written a lot about, huma humanitarian interventions. Uh, when can states or entities use violence to either stop genocide or protect a group? Uh, let's, let's hear Tedham's uh, question. Should democratic governments try to protect the human rights of all citizens in the world? If so, when should democratic governments get involved with foreign countries, and when is it a bad idea? Tiny questions yeah. there for you. I I think the true but difficult answer is that it's impossible to generalize. One of the what, one of the other ways in which human rights are articulated <clears throat> is that these are things that when they are abused, when they are violated, they those violations produce an automatic emotional reaction in every human being. That the, the response to the abuses, it's pre-rational, it's emotional, it's something that we feel. It's not something necessarily that we think, it's something that we feel. This is, I think, one of the facts that makes this debate so charged and so difficult. Sure, sure. Because when you, 
read accounts of human rights abuses, when you see pictures of the victims of human rights, it's hard not to have a strong emotional response course, to them. And the almost automatic reaction is to say, this is unacceptable. We have to do something. We have to do something. And in crisis after crisis, and any one of us could cite any number of examples just from the last 10 years, whether it's Sudan, China, Libya, Syria, the list goes on and on in a kind of a depressing way. It does. The inevitable response is do something. The question is, well, what do you do in these cases? And I think that's something that can, the answer can only be arrived at on a, on a case by case basis after weighing, not what is the perfect solution, but what is possible. And it strikes me, Mike, and this comes out of your scholarship and just an observation of our world today, uh, that actually um, many Americans and many citizens of other societies are perhaps much more aware of these trade-offs now. Um, there was a time, it seems, um, a few years ago when it appeared to many Americans that we were invincible, we could do anything, and so the pursuit of moral righteousness justified probably excessive uh, violence on behalf of human rights, as well as other things that people uh, had as goals. Um, today, there seems to be more restraint around these issues, and, and perhaps there's more wisdom in that. Mm-hmm. Do you see that? And, and, and what do you see, uh, and this is always where we like to, to go at the end of our podcast, what do you see as opportunities for citizens today mm-hmm. to in, in improve their thinking and in, improve the way our society manages these difficult trade-offs? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's a danger that the pendulum on human rights has swung too far in the other direction. Uh, if you think of it as a pendulum over the last 15 or 20 years, I think you're right in describing it, that there was a moment at which these ideas, it's, it seemed necessary to vindicate these ideas all over the world by any means, and the United States had the means to do that. That. That way of thinking about it, I think, was too extreme in one direction. And I think we're at a moment where there's a danger of the pendulum going too far in the other direction, of being too restrained, too uh, pessimistic. Yeah, isolationist. Too isolationist, exactly. So what can citizens do in that context? I think the one answer, one way to think about it, is to try to modulate those swings of the pendulum to, to stay committed... To the, to the dream, the common flag of human rights, to that vision while recognizing the trade-offs. And so to exercise a, a moderating influence and to hold people who are making these decisions to account. Yes. Um, so saying at a moment like this, whatever's changing in American domestic politics, whatever is changing in international politics, nonetheless, it is necessary to think about these principles and to try to uphold them in ways that are possible, even while recognizing that we may not get to that perfect vision. Nonetheless, it, I think it's the job of any citizen in a, in a democracy to hold people to account and to keep that vision before them. Right, right. I think that's a, a wonderful uh, point and an and optimistic point because people can do that. We have information resources, we have access 
to uh, many institutions that allow us to do that, especially those of us who are fortunate to be around educational institutions. Zachary, do, do you think this resonates with young people? Are young people interested in understanding these trade-offs and holding leaders accountable? Yeah, I, yes, I really do think that uh, young people are interested in this, but I do think that part of the problem is that uh, that young people aren't taught as much to 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 learn about the world around them in, in our country. I think that if 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 young people experience the world, travel more, and are able to 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 sympathize with people around the world in ways where they can see how they themselves are viewed and how they view others, I think too much today is based on short snippets of other cultures or other people instead of really getting to know things. And I think that's something that people can really do to get involved is help people understand other cultures and other areas. And that, and when we understand other areas, it makes it less likely that these things happen. Right, right. Could I, could I say on, in response to that, I think that's a terrific point. I think it's easy for people in this country or any other to ask, well, how does this matter to me? Why should I care about what's happening in, in China? This was a question that Enlightenment philosophers asked. Sure. Why should we care about an earthquake in China? Here's one way to think about that. If you accept that human rights are universal, that they are part of being human, and that all people have them by virtue of being human, then by caring about and trying to defend the human rights of others, you are also simultaneously defending your own rights mm -hmm. by preserving that universality, by preserving that unbroken fabric that spans the world. Thinking about the rights of others is a way of thinking about and defending your own rights. And so that's why what's happening in another country matters very much at home. And if we allow that universal commitment to slip, if it slips abroad, it can slip at home too. And so that's why this commitment, I think, sure. and this vigilance, sure. this involvement on the part of citizens is so important. Right. And it fundamentally requires uh, a sense, not just of a common humanity, but of common connections we can't escape. That we are, we're not just all human beings uh, operating in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we are actually interconnected in ways that we don't see. Again, it appears to me that, that young people have a, a great intuition about this because the, of the electronic interconnections that they, they navigate uh, every day. Um, I, I think this has been a, a truly enlightening discussion about an enlightenment topic of human rights. And it, it brings forward uh, so well how um, the ideological positions, the labels that we often see in our society, actually uh, take us away from the real issues, which are these difficult trade-offs and compromises. Uh, Mike, thank you for your scholarship on this topic and for sharing your wisdom with us so uh, cogently and eloquently today. And, and Zachary, thank you for your poem and reminding us that uh, as we think about these compromises, we have to continue to dream as well. Thank you for joining us on this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. 
Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.